Please remain standing for the reading of God's word in John chapter 6. We're going to begin reading in verse 22. Our primary text is verses 25 through 40. But I want to set the context. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus fed the 5,000. Then he knew that the crowd uh, wanted to make him king. He withdrew from the crowd, sent the disciples across the lake. And then he walked on water, met them in the middle of the lake, and now they've arrived on the other shore. So verses 22 through 24 are transition into our text. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What miraculous sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life To the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Heavenly Father, help us to realize that often what we want from you is too little because it is, it is simply here and now. Enable us to want what you want to give us, which is eternal life. Life that begins in our lives now that shines like a light in the darkness but will never be extinguished. Because Christ will succeed in what he came to do and will raise us up at the last day. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This week at staff meeting, I asked the staff, I said, I need this to help prepare for a sermon illustration. So I have a question for you. What is your most important meal? And they're a smart staff. One of them asked, do you mean what's the most important meal of the day? And I said, my question stands on its own. What's your most important meal? Someone else said, well, some say breakfast is the most important meal. And I said, I need something more profound than that. And then someone else went really spiritual. He said, the Lord's Supper. I thought, that's great. That's too profound. What's the answer? The answer is your next meal. Because if you don't get your next meal, you will starve to death. Why is that a good illustration? It's because whenever I'm preparing to preach God's word and I dig into it and I begin to think of what God would have for us, uh, his people, to feed upon, it becomes very important. I, I often think this is the most important thing. But this time, this time it's not just that dynamic. This is truly the most important sermon you will ever here. Now that I've started that claim, let me give you the caveats. It's not because I'm preaching it. And this is not the only passage from which this sermon could be preached. There are many passages in the Bible, most famously uh, the book of Job and, and many other passages. And it's the most important sermon for Christians for those who profess to be followers of Christ, the most important message of the Bible for the world is the gospel itself. And this passage, actually the, the culmination of this question, uh, this uh, sermon for Christians, is the gospel itself. But for those who profess to be followers of Christ, for those who are in church this morning, the millions upon millions around the world, there is this question. What about when God doesn't give you what you want? You see, this message is Jesus doesn't feed the 5,000. It's just part one. This is a long uh, text. It will have part two next week in the same context. We can't take it all at once. I wish I had thought to tweak the title to do it like TV episodes, When Jesus Didn't Feed the 5,000. Because when you just say Jesus doesn't feed the 5,000, every time we make a statement about the Bible, it sounds like it's an eternal principle. So if Jesus feeds the 5,000, that's what he always does. And that's why it's so rattling when it's Jesus doesn't feed the 5,000. But that's not an eternal principle. It's an episode. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus had compassion on the crowds. And he fed them physical food. But now... This is about when Jesus didn't feed the 5,000. What is he teaching them? And there are three questions that I want you to be pondering as we work through this text. First, what do the people want in this passage? 
What do they want? Two, what does Jesus want to give? They're different things. And three, which is better? What do the people want in this passage? What does Jesus want to give? And which is better? And now I personalize it to you. What is it that you want from God? Why are you in church this morning? What is it that you zone in on that is proof that God will, uh, loves you and, and will take care of you? What do you want? And consider, what is it that Jesus wants to give you? And here's the call, the call from God's word to realize that what Jesus wants to give you is so often, so far better than what we want from him. In this passage, he gives us better bread. He teaches us about a better work. And then in the end of part one of this passage, we find that Jesus knows he's rejected. He says, as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. He knows he's rejected at this point by the multitudes following him. By the end of the chapter in part two next week, they're going to be deserting him. But will Jesus fail? Will Jesus fail? Let's work through the passage. The transition is just how they found him on the other side of the lake uh, after he had walked on water. And they said, when did you get here? Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? They were baffled. They saw the disciples leave in the only boat. They didn't expect to find Jesus, but they heard something about it. They walked around the lake and they finally find him. And that's their question. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. This is the truly, truly I say to you. It's Jesus' way of underlining. You are looking for me. Not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. We could read that not just because or not even because you saw the miraculous signs. There are other places that John, in the Gospel of John that Jesus has said, you just want signs. You want the signs and wonders. That's what you want. Jesus here is saying your motive is even baser than that. It's not... Even because you saw the miraculous sign. It's because you ate the loaves and had your fill. You were satisfied with food for the stomach and you want more. And you're excited about me because you believe you know that I can deliver it in marvelous ways. You're not astounded and amazed at the miracle saying, who is this? Let's listen to him. You want to make me king because I can take care of your daily needs. That's why you're looking for me. It is such an indictment. And Jesus goes on to say, verse 27, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him the Father has placed his seal of approval. He is offering them, he is wanting for them, better bread than daily bread. Now remember this point. What they want is physical food. He says, I want to give you food that endures to eternal life. I call you to seek the food. Work for the food that endures for eternal life. Not just your daily physical food. He's not talking about literal food for the belly. 
for the rest of this this, uh, passage. And we need to remember that next week. I'll remind you of it next week. Because he starts talking about eating my flesh and drinking my blood. He's talking about the food that endures to eternal life, not food for the belly. That's his indictment against them. He's saying, what you want is not grand enough. I want to give you something far better. Seek that. So they realize he's going spiritual. And they they go pious. They say, in verse uh, 28, Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Now here's one of those questions that sounds so good. They want to be obedient. They're seeking Christ. They have been literally following him around the lake. And they've found him again. But their question is much more in the Pharisees' worldview than in Jesus' worldview. They ask a works-oriented question. What must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answers them in their terms, in works terms, and he leads them to faith. Now, I think a lot of people who are, being in church is a lot like following Jesus around the lake and finding him. We are here because we, we, we seek to know Jesus. My question is, what do you want him for? I ask this question of you and I ask this question of the church at large. What is it that people go to church for? Why is it that the fastest growing churches are the ones that promise this kind of physical food and daily blessing? It's because that's what we want in our old nature. That's our natural desire. We want God so that he can give us what we think we need, what we certainly want He can fix every problem. And indeed, he can. But he knows we're short-sighted. He knows that we're seeking a kind of of, uh, provision that lasts for a moment and then leaves us craving thereafter. He offers us a different kind of food that endures to eternal life. He... He says, you keep thinking, well, what must we do to get God's favor? What must I do for him to look on me with favor and heal me of this disease? What must I do so that he will bless me and my family and and give me provision? What must I do? Well, now, we who have come to know the grace of God and to know that what he has given us, the spiritual food that is Jesus himself, how he's died to pay the penalty of sin, how he has risen from the dead, how he uh, gives life eternal uh, to those of us who believe, we still should say, what must we do to follow Jesus? Jesus said, follow me. And he led his disciples to the cross where he paid for their sins. And then he sent them out into the world for them to follow Jesus, uh, meant to obey him in taking the gospel to the world. We should want to know what pleases God. And we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds to follow our Savior. But we don't follow our Savior in order to get God's favor so that he will do what we want him to do. 
you see that? It's a very subtle line of, of thinking. But it is the heart of our sinful nature. And the reason I say this is the most important sermon, whether it's preached by me or someone else, or preached from this passage or some other place in the Bible, it's what do you do when God does not do what you want him to do? And I could even intensify the question by saying, what do you do when God gives you what you don't want? Do you reach that point of disillusionment where you think, this isn't working, I'm going to try something else. If this is a test of faith where you find out if, you re- if your faith is really in Jesus with saving faith. Or if your faith in Jesus is to somehow get him to please you. That's a test of faith. It's a huge one. Jesus says there's a better work. The work of God is this. To believe in the one he has sent. Now, we can summarize that, that the better work is faith. And in some ways, faith, receiving Jesus as Savior and Lord, is a work. It's something we do. Ephesians 2.8 tells us even that faith is the gift of God. Lest no one should boast, it is God's work in us. Praise God for that, because we naturally wouldn't want to do that. We'd want to have our way and want to run away from God. But when we turn and start wanting to... To, to receive Jesus, that's evidence of his work in us. But sometimes we don't even get to the point of faith in Christ. We say the answer is faith, faith itself. And our faith is in our faith. That's, that's in our culture. I'm a spiritual person. I have faith. The question is, faith in What? Is it faith in yourself that somehow, though you don't see how, it's going to work out because you're going to make it work out? Is it faith in some higher power that even though you can't see how now, you're just going to believe that he's going to end up giving you that bread for your stomach? Is that the kind of faith? The faith is not what's important. The faith in Christ is important. It's the object of your faith that's crucial. And faith in Christ is a turning from saying to Jesus, this is what I want. Will you do what I want? It's, Lord Jesus, I receive you as my Savior and my Lord, and I want what you want for me. That's why this is the most important sermon for us to grow up as Christians. It's a better work to believe in the one he has sent. The rest of the passage, we find uh, the people trying to Take what Jesus is saying and fit it into what they want in a spiritual way. And Jesus pointing out, no, you're rejecting me. But Jesus will not fail in what he came to do. Let's see how this works. In verse 30, so they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? Really? Don't you want Jesus to say are you kidding me? Don't you remember the reason you came around here is because you had bread for the stomach. That was a miracle. I know that you've seen the other miracles that I've been doing. I've been healing the sick. I've been casting out demons. You've seen them. That's why you're coming to me in the first place. That's why you want me to be your king. Because you know I can do these things. And now you say, what miraculous sign will you give me? Unbelief is ridiculous. We pointed that out in the previous passage in John. 
And they're asking for another miracle. That's what I would have said. But I wasn't Jesus. He's, he's really pretty patient here with them. He allows them to go on and hang themselves a little bit further. They, they show their knowledge of scripture. You see, we can get really pious in how we approach God, getting God to give us what we want. They said, our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Oh, now they've gone spiritual. But you, that, and that manna in the desert was God's miraculous provision of bread when they were out, when the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness. And they would have starved out there, but God provided for them with this bread from heaven. And it is a miracle, and it is marvelous. And they're saying, what will you do to feed our stomachs? Even when they go spiritual and they're citing scripture and they're, they're showing God will uh, give, give bread from heaven to eat. It's the manna, still food for the stomach. Jesus wants to give them far more, something far better. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. Now they didn't mention Moses' name before, but when they didn't mention God's name either, they just said our forefathers ate the man in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus knows they're thinking Moses gave them bread to eat. What are you going to do to prove you're a prophet of God, to prove that this is of God? What are you going to do to feed our bellies? And Jesus says, it wasn't Moses. It was God who gave them bread. And he's giving you bread now he goes on to say verse 33 for the bread of god is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world he's referring to himself but they don't get it they respond to that much like the woman at the well did when jesus says ask if you knew who it was who spoke to you, who asked you for water, you'd ask of him and he'd give you living water and you'd never thirst again. And she says, give me this water so I won't have to keep coming back to this well. She keeps thinking in the here and now and in the literal and in the material and in the earthly. She's fitting the promises of God into a very, very small box. She doesn't get it yet. And she says, give me this water. So that I won't keep having to come back to this well. They say, sir, from now on, give us this bread. Jesus knows that what they still want is bread for the belly. They're still wanting the here and now. And he wants to give them something far better. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. The key here of the satisfaction that Jesus is talking about is not the satisfaction of the stomach. He's saying, you want bread for the stomach. Seek for better bread. Seek for that spiritual bread that will lead to eternal life. Jesus does things with his physical body as he sacrifices himself on the cross. And we're going to get to that next week. In part two, when Jesus goes very drastic, he goes very dramatic, and he says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, and, and the church has gone crazy over this throughout the centuries. Others have accused the church of cannibalism and have persecuted the church because of this, this passage. 
Uh, people have gotten it all wrong. When you, you remember Jesus is saying, I'm not talking about bread for the stomach. I'm talking about bread for the soul. And my body, sacrifice on the cross, provides your greatest need. And we'll, we'll discuss that more this next week. It's, all, it's a foretaste of it, if I can use that uh, metaphor, when he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. Do you believe that you can be hungry in your belly, sick in your body, broken in relationships because of people who reject you as they're rejecting Jesus right here, that you can lack provision and feel desperate, and yet there's a satisfaction of the soul that is at such a deeper level that you can say, yes, Jesus, you are sufficient for me. I am content with whatever you will for me because I want what you have to give me. And because of you, I'm truly satisfied. I never go hungry. I never go thirsty at the deepest level. Have you gotten there? That's growing up as a Christian. That's what Jesus is calling the people to. He knows they're not there. He says in the next verse, verse 36, that as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. Jesus is rejected in this passage, and he knows it. He's not surprised later in the chapter when they all desert him. We'll get to that next week. He knows where their heart is. But Jesus will not fail. See, that's the interesting thing. He's facing a crowd where they are thinking, you do this. You show us a sign. You prove yourself to us. We'll be the judge. And he's saying, no, no, no. I will not. You, I will not fail. You reject me. But listen to this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. There's a direct message that Jesus is expressing to those who are rejecting him when he's saying, I will not fail in what I came to do. I'm not subject to you. To you. You're subject to me. That's the direct message. But there is an indirect assurance in these verses for all who have come to Christ. And truly puts their faith in him. They know his saving work. They know the eternal life that stretches out before them. When God doesn't answer your prayers the way you want him to answer them. You can look to this passage and say. But this is what I'm sure of. This is what I'm sure of. Because Jesus says he will not fail. And he won't fail in this for me. He's talking about me. Well what's he saying about you? Let's read these verses. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. As he's driving those who don't believe in him away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up. At the last day. Wow. This is what he's doing for you. 
If you've come to the Lord Jesus Christ and you've put your faith in him and you belong to him and you want what he wants for you, even when he's not answering this daily prayer the way you want him to, do you know this? He will not fail. He will not lose you. He will raise you up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. This is really cool. Do you catch? Even though he's facing off those who are rejecting him and saying, but I'm not going to fail in my mission. This is what I came to do. You're going to reject me, but I'm not driving you away. I'm offering you something better and you don't believe. If you come to that point in your faith, when you're growing up, you say, I thought this was this would work. I came to Jesus. I came to church. But look at what God has done to me. Look at what he's left me in. Look at the suffering that that I'm experiencing. This isn't working. And you're driven away. You're just like the multitudes here. You never really believed in him for what he came to give you. But if you're in that darkest day, that deepest pit, and you hear Jesus say, I'm not going to fail. The Father has given you to me. And I am going to secure you by my life, my death, my resurrection. I'm going to give all of that to you and I will raise you up at the last day. Does that not give you an assurance that the trouble is temporary? And the glory is eternal? And that's what he has in store for you? That is really cool. It's great and it gives us a light in the darkest hour. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the first chapter, that uh, he was, he says, we were hard-pressed on every side, beyond our ability to endure. We even despaired of life itself. Have you ever heard it said, Christians often say, God doesn't give you more than you can bear. That is not true. There's a, a verse about God that, that we're not tempted beyond what is common to man. And God with the temptation will provide a way of escape. Therefore, we're, we have no excuse for our sin. That's where that idea comes from. We don't have excuse for our sin. But in terms of our circumstances, they are often beyond what we can bear. Just the cycle of life itself, whether you have a tragedy early through accident or illness, or live long enough to face the wonders of old age and the fading away. Which, by the way, the coronavirus is out there. Somebody sent me a a website yesterday that said that the CDC has said that those who have underlying health issues and who are uh, older should perhaps consider uh, drawing back from public assemblies, including religious worship. We'll talk about things. When, when this thing hits Virginia, we'll, we'll have a plan in place. What, what should we do? Okay, I think it's going to be like another flu. It's my personal opinion, but I'm not a doctor. And the flu is a pretty dangerous thing we're all reminded of. But this website said those who are older, and I texted back said, How old is old? (laughs) What is older? And then I read the article and it said, over 60. 
I texted again and said, over 60 exclamation point, exclamation point. We're fortunate enough, enough to be in that population that is now vulnerable. And my parents lived 30 years longer than that. Guess what? The cycle of life is more than we can bear if that's all there is. Have you realized that yet? God does not promise not to give you more than he can bear. Paul said, we despaired even of life itself. But he goes on to say, but God did this in order that we might not rely on ourselves, but on him who raises the dead. You see, it's not just we don't rely on ourselves, we rely on God and we forget what it's for. It reminds us in the end, God who raises the dead makes it so that it doesn't matter. If we're cut short in life early or die of old age, do you know what you have? You have the promise of Christ that says, I will not lose one of you. Not one. But I'll raise you up at the last day. What an assurance is ours in Christ. And it gives a light to us when he doesn't answer our daily prayers the way we want him to. Do you know that? Ah, that's growing up in your faith. And when you know that, there's a joy that you can have that won't be taken away by anything. We can weep. We can mourn. But not as does the world that has no hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Help us to take this, digest it, never forget it. And let us bring our prayers to you. Our daily bread desires Jesus taught us to pray that. Once we've prayed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Let us want most what you want for us. And to have the assurance that what you want for us is the eternal life and glory that Jesus came to give. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.